Well, good evening. If we turn your Bible to Exodus 13. Ironically, the name of my sermon is I will put my trust in you alone and I will not be shaken. <laughs> it actually applies well to our passage this evening. Thank you, Adam, and praise team and praise band for leading us in worship, preparing us for worship, the preaching of the word. We have quite a passage tonight, and so I just want to get started in this. We'll, we'll be out on time, but um, it, it is quite a passage that we need to consider to get the full, um, the full picture of all that's being communicated here. So let's ask the Lord to bless this evening. Lord, thank you. You have already blessed us tonight through song and through prayer. And now, Lord, we pray that you would bless us in, through the preaching of the word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tim Keller tells of when he was a 23-year-old man, a student, he had the opportunity to go to R.C. Sproul's home. And a, an Old Testament scholar from Britain was there named Alec Motier. And R.C. Sproul said to Motier, tell us about the connection between the Old and New Testaments. Motier replied something like this, think about it. Think of what an Israelite would say on the way to Canaan after passing through the Red Sea. If you asked an Israelite, who are you? He might reply, I was in a foreign land under the sentence of death and in bondage, but I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. We saw that last week. And our mediator led us out and we crossed over. Now we're on our way to the promised land, though we're not there yet. And he is present in our midst and he will stay with us until we arrive home. And then Motir added, that's exactly what a Christian says. And that is an apt summary, summary of, of Exodus and what we'll continue to see tonight. Now, just as a, a quick summation of the book at this point, Exodus 1 all the way through Exodus 13, verse 16, is the record of how the Lord came to his people in their distress. Remember at the end of chapter 2, they prayed and they cried out to the Lord, and he came to them in their distress. We saw this morning that our prayers are fragrant offering to the Lord. Our prayers matter. And, and so they cried out to the Lord, and he came to them in their distress. And then you could say chapter 3, verses 7 to 8 is a key text for that part of Exodus. I've got it on the board, I believe. I have surely seen the afflictions of my people. I have come down to deliver them, to bring them up to a good and broad land. So that brings us up to verse 16 of chapter 13. Well, the next part of the passage, chapter 13, verse 17, all the way through chapter 18 is the record of how the Lord went with his people on their pilgrimage. And you can say a key text there is chapter 13, verses 30, 21 and 22. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud and by night in a pillar of fire. And so this second part covers the first two months of Israel's freedom. We saw them, they were set free last week by the blood of the Lamb, 
the Passover, and now we're in the first two months of their freedom. And the first thing we're going to see here in our passage, starting in chapter 13, verse 17, is the Lord and his fatherly wisdom. Notice with me in verse 17 of chapter 13. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. That would have been the shortcut. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And so the way of the sea, by way of the land of the Philistines, was the shortest and quickest way for Israel to get to the land. It would have taken, scholars tell us, about two weeks. The other way is going to take about 40 years. And verse 17 tells us why he did it this way. God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Now, it's it's interesting, in verse 18, they left equipped for battle. The people of Israel went up out of the land equipped for battle. But in verse 17, God says, I know they're not ready for it. That's the wisdom of God. And that should encourage us all. All of us have been in or are presently in seasons of waiting where you feel like you're wasting your time and you're not wasting your time. God has something that you're not prepared for. And so you have this season of waiting. And we think we are ready for those things that we're waiting on, but the Lord in his wisdom knows we're not. And that's where Israel is. In fact, later on, once they reach Canaan, um, and, and they saw how big the enemies were in Canaan, they said, let's appoint a leader and go back to Egypt. That was Numbers 14, verse 4. But make no mistake, even though they weren't prepared for the short, uh, they weren't ready for the battles that lay ahead, the long route was not going to be bells and whistles either. Not long from now, they're going to be hemmed in between the Red Sea and the most powerful king, the most powerful army on the planet, Pharaoh and the Egyptian army. And this reminds us that God is always teaching us many things in the way of the wilderness. And they will be on the way in the wilderness. And God is always teaching us He has numerous purposes in mind that extend way beyond us getting from point A to point B. God is always at work. That brings us to the second part of this passage, the Lord and his promises. Verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, And you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And so when Israel left Egypt, Egypt was plundered by Israel. And now we see them taking something else, Joseph's bones. This was Joseph's last wish in Genesis 50. It's interesting that this was such a a desire for him. Why? Because he believed in a future resurrection. And so he wanted his bones in the land of promise. 
In fact, in Hebrews 11, it says, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus. He knew they were going to go back into the land. So he made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. And so this just little throwaway line here is very important. It speaks of the hope, the the hope that came from the covenant promises. And so we see that here. That brings us to verse 20, the Lord in his presence. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. The Lord always shepherds his people, always. He's made a promise. He's made a commitment to do that. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light and they, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Now it would be easy to say, I wish I had a pillar of cloud and a fire by night to lead me in all the decisions that I have to make. It'd be easy to say that. But actually, under the new covenant, we have something better than that. We have the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and we have the full canon. They didn't have a full canon. What a privilege we have. Uh, a, a young boy asked me this morning, how do you know when God's speaking? And I said, when your Bible's open. You know God's speaking when your Bible's open. We have a f- completed canon, and we've been indwelt by the Spirit. Now, under the old covenant, God was with his people, but not in his people, except for those unique exceptions with the anointed mediators of Israel. But under the new covenant, that has changed. What did Jesus tell his disciples? It's better that I go away because he dwells with you, that is the spirit, but he will be in you. That was the promise, John 14, 17. In fact, I believe the apostle Paul may have had this in mind when he writes in Romans 8, 14, all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. We don't need a cloud. We don't need a fire. We have the spirit and the word. Well, that brings us to chapter 14. Really get to the heart of our passage here. The Lord and his zeal for his glory. Now, by the way, whatever glorifies God benefits his people. And we need to keep that in mind. Well, notice me in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of, now I'm going to pull a hamstring trying to pronounce this, Pi-Hahirath, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. Now this is a counterintuitive strategy, a terrible military strategy at face level, in fact. Israel is on their way out of Egypt, and God tells them to go back and camp between the sea and the desert. But God's strategies are often counterintuitive. Think about an old, childless man who, who is called to father a mighty nation. That generally doesn't happen, does it? Or how about a small teenager doesn't normally defeat a champion giant. 
or crucified men for that matter don't normally bring life to the spiritually dead. Those are counterintuitive strategies. But verse 4 here tells us why he did it this way. He says, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. So God puts his people in a situation where only he can take the credit when deliverance comes. We had the sentence of death on ourselves, Paul said, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in he who raises from the dead. And he says, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Remember, in Exodus 3, God revealed his name, Lord, to Moses. This is the name I want to be known throughout all generations. And from here on, everything God does is to demonstrate his lordship, even to the Egyptians. And it says they did so. So everything he does, he does for his glory, which benefits his people. Romans 11, from, from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever and ever. Now, in verses 5 to 9, Pharaoh pursues Israel just as God said he would. He thinks his military strategy is foolproof, and he has the best chariots and the best army in the world. And Israel, on top of that, is on foot. It looks like a hopeless situation. Notice in verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants were changed towards the people. And they said, what is this we have done? We have let Israel go from serving us. Remember, Pharaoh allowed them to go after the death of the firstborn sons. But he was never repentant. And this is just like it is with unbelievers. They get themselves in a world of hurt and it appears that they've gotten religious all of a sudden. You remember what happened after 9-11? Churches were filled until America realized there wasn't going to be another 9-11, at least for many, many more years. And that's exactly how it was with Pharaoh. He has already changed his mind. So verse 6, he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them and the Lord hardened Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Again, when God hardens, he's not doing something that's antithetical to a man's nature. He's giving a person over to his desires. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army. And he overtook them encamped at the sea by pi Hahirath in front of Baal-Zephon. So we've seen Pharaoh's hardness of heart in Exodus. He initially refuses to let the people go. Then he negotiate, uh, negotiates. And in chapter 8, we saw this last time, he asked for prayer. He asked Moses to pray to the Lord for him. But then he changes his mind. And this double-mindedness is a warning to us all. It's a warning to us all. We're very, we're much more like Pharaoh than we care to admit. And so there's a world of difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is what we might call attrition. Godly sorrow is contrition. It's two different religions, two different destinies. Pharaoh has worldly sorrow that leads to death. 
Well, that brings us to the good news of the passage. The Lord and his salvation. Notice with me in verse 10. It says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. All of us have been there, haven't we? It just looks hopeless. You're in a situation, you're in a world of hurt. And they feared greatly. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And so the Egyptians were superior in every way as soldiers, and Israel at surface level had every reason to fear. But in this particular case, their fear was a sin. Now, why would I say that? Well, because they were forgetting the promises of God. And they were forgetting the one who had worked marvelous wonders to redeem them out of Egypt so that they can inherit the land. Now, there's a difference between sins of malice where you, you intentionally commit high-handed sins where you're presuming upon the grace of God and unintentional sins, what we might call sins of weakness. In this particular case, they were sins of weakness. But the sins of weakness were producing sins of malice. Why do I say that? Because they start complaining. And the next time we are together, we're going to be in Exodus 17, and we're going to see how egregious complaining is. It is worthy of judgment. And so their sins of weakness produced, because they were unchecked, they were unrepented of, their sins of weakness produced sins of malice. And so they are in sin here. They are seeing their circumstances, and we've all been there. That's why Paul says, look to the Israelites as your example, without reference to the reality that it was the Lord who brought them to this place. In fact, we don't have time for this, but you can read Psalm 106, and the psalmist is reflecting on how these Israelites complained out of sinful fear during this time in their pilgrimage. And he confesses his sin, and, and he reminds God's people in that psalm of how egregious that is. And you know, we're, we're often tempted to do the same thing. Here's our problem. Our problem is that after we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, just like these people were, as soon as we start having problems, we want to go back to our old ways of coping. And so, before you were saved, if you created, developed a pattern of complaining in this particular case... When the stress and the pressures come, when things go in a way that is different than you want them to go, you tend to, we tend to revert back to the old self. We allow the old self to take over, and the old self is marked by that complaining. That's exactly what we see here. No matter how much we hate our old lives, there's a weird security that is attached to it, isn't it? 
And so we return to those same old patterns. Of course, complaining uh, reveals to you and everyone else around you that you're not walking in the Spirit. Well, that brings us to verse 13. I love this section of the passage. Perhaps you could say this is the key to the passage. And Moses said to the people, fear not. Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. So at one time, Moses was quick-tempered. It cost him 40 years on the backside of the desert, right? The formerly quick-tempered Moses patiently answers these people's accusations with three commands. And these three commands are transcultural, and they are transtemporal. They are a command to every believer today. Uh, they are a command to everyone who has been redeemed by the blood, who is on their way into their inheritance. All right? That applies to most everyone here tonight. Here are the three commands. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, for he will fight for you. And we know better than they do that our Lord has conquered through a cross and a resurrection, through his ascension to the right hand of the Father. He will fight for you. And third, be still. Be still. Fretting and complaining reflects that you aren't still, that you aren't trusting. Before the Lord exhorts the Israel to trust that he will fight through them or for them, he shows them once again uh, he will be for them. Now, later, this counterintuitive strategy, we might call it, will be used again. In 2 Chronicles 20, listen to this. Jehazel, in the face of the swarm of Moabites, Ammonites, Meonites, said by the Spirit of the Lord, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid, do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah, believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And when they began to sing and praise, that should be sing, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so they were routed. Imagine what it would have been like to stand still as the most powerful army in the world is bearing down on you. Every instinct would have been either to fight or to flee. And that's still our instinct today. Uh, we instinctively want to either fight our problems in our own strength or flee them in various ways. And God says, be still. Be still. Now, this doesn't mean you don't take responsibility. Um, we, could, we could say that as New Covenant believers, the way we are still is that we, we participate, we avail ourselves to all the means of grace that God has given us. Uh, that would mean private Bible study and prayer. 
Uh, it would mean family worship and family prayer. It would mean immersion in the body of Christ. And I'm preaching to the choir on a Sunday night. But you recognize the importance of corporate worship. Those are ways that we can be still. We have responsibilities. But there are some things we can't take responsibility for. For example, uh, I am responsible for being a, a godly parent for my children. But I cannot make the choices for my children. And so there's things we just have to trust in the Lord for. And when we try to take control over what isn't in our control, we're in effect saying God is not doing a good job. I'm going to step in, and the result of that is stress and overbusiness and unwise decisions and having just a kind of controlling-like behavior in your relationships. Now, in verses 15 to 18, the Lord is going to single out Moses. And we're going to learn that Moses, again, is their mediator. Notice in verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff, and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots, and his horsemen. Do you recognize God's zeal for his glory? We saw this. His jealousy for his glory is for your benefit. That's our hope tonight. No matter what we see in our culture, no matter what we see in our relationships and in our families, God's zeal for his glory is our hope. And he's good at getting his glory. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now, we have seen the angel of the Lord introduce himself to Moses. We see the angel of the Lord at work again here. We saw that the angel of the Lord was called Yahweh in Exodus 3. I believe that this is a pre-incarnate manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's what we would call, let me give you a fancy term, a Christophany which is just a pre-incarnate manifestation of the Son of God. The Old Testament is preparing us for the incarnation. The incarnation doesn't come out of the blue. God's been preparing us for thousands of years. So notice here in verse 19. Then the angel of God, the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel, isn't that beautiful? He went before them. We have one who goes before us. We saw this morning in Revelation 5, he has conquered for us. He went before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. It would have been many, many stories high to have the sea divided like that. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, remarkable faith, and the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen, and in the morning... 
watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. The Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared, and the Egyptians fled into it, and the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on the left. That would have been a remarkable sight. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people, notice, the Lord works so that we will trust him more, that we will fear him more. The people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Why was it important to believe in the servant Moses? Because God is teaching us, even here, we need a mediator. Moses is a shadow of the greater one to come, the greater mediator. And all of this happened, note this, at the time when everything seemed hopeless. When everything seemed hopeless, that's when God moved. It wasn't that his arm had been shortened up to that point. He was teaching his people. He was turning these former slaves into sons right before their very eyes and he did it by his spirit i love that the very spirit who hovered over the waters in genesis 1 so god creates he recreates he saves by his spirit through the mediator now skeptics have had a hard time with this story um, pastor donald bridge tells the story of a a liberal preacher visiting an African-American church. And as the minister was talking about the crossing of the Red Sea, someone shouted, praise the Lord, taking all them children through the deep waters. What a mighty miracle. And that liberal preacher who did not believe in miracles was annoyed. And so he sarcastically told the church that the Israelites were probably in marshland with an ebbing tide, so they were simply wading through six inches of water. And in response, the same voice shouted, Praise the Lord, drowning all those Egyptians in six inches of water. <laughs> but what God is doing, and he continues to do, he's establishing a pattern. He's teaching us about himself. Isaiah 43, thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea. How did the prophet know that? He was meditating on Exodus, the very Exodus we hold in our hands, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty warrior, waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and, war, and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Where did he learn that? From Exodus. And... He would not have learned that from Exodus had this not have happened. 
God takes his people through these things to teach him about himself. Well, let me close with some concluding thoughts. Seven o'clock. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10 that the Israelites were baptized into Moses. Isn't that remarkable? They were baptized into Moses. Again, that is a type. Moses is a shadow. Christ is the substance. Believers today are baptized into Christ Jesus. That's why we are Baptist. And that's why we baptize by immersion. So this story is a picture of what happens in our salvation. Three points from that and we'll close. First of all, the Israelites were delivered from their enslavement. They were now free by the blood of the Lamb, but they still had problems. We see that in the text. We'll see that next time. They're complaining and they're grumbling and they have sinful fear and anxiety. They had gotten out of Egypt physically, but Egypt had not gotten out of them. As Acts 7.39 says, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. And as for us, we're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, the one who's conquered. We saw that this morning. But this has so many layers. Objectively, we're, we're redeemed from the condemnation of sin, but subjectively, we still struggle uh, with going back to Egypt, don't we? We still struggle with that. The old self, which has been crucified, but still rears its ugly head. Second thing we learn from this account, it's all of grace. We're saved by grace. These people... Uh, they didn't deserve salvation any more than Egypt did. Time and time again, they rebelled and sinned against God. It was all of grace. Again, in verse 13 and 14 of Exodus 14, we see, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. This is grace. And the Israelites crossing over the Red Sea is another picture for us here. The moment they crossed over, on the, in the Red Sea, they crossed from death to life. So on the western side of the sea, they were runaway slaves. On the eastern side of the sea, they were liberated people. Uh, John 5, 24, Jesus said, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He, she, has crossed over from death to life. Could it be that Jesus is thinking in terms of the Red Sea? He has crossed over from death to life. The New Testament is very dependent on the Old Testament. So on Good Friday, we were slaves under the tyranny of sin. And on Easter morning, we were a liberated people, free from sin and judgment. And the quality of their faith at this point was very weak, but it was there. They complained, they were fearful, they grumbled, but they were saved by the object of their faith, not the quality of their faith, just as we are. Final point, Israel was saved instrumentally through a mediator. 
But Moses only points us to the one who did not avoid the flood, did not avoid the waters. He actually was plunged into the waters of judgment so that we could walk through on dry ground. See, the waters in the Old Testament represents, the sea represents judgment and chaos. And our greater Moses actually experienced the judgment of being immersed in the waters of condemnation and judgment. In other words, the waters of judgment didn't part for our greater Moses. They fell on him so that we could pass through. And that is a word for us. The purpose of this text is not just to inform us, to scratch our historical uh, itches. It's to strengthen our faith in the Lord who redeems. And this is a word to every unbeliever here as well. This is a word that if you will trust in the Lord and trust in his mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, who took the judgment as our Passover lamb that we deserve, the Bible says your sins will be forgiven. That's remarkable. You will inherit eternal life. And as Adam comes forward, the the praise band, we want to give you an opportunity to respond to that gospel plea. We're going to have pastors here at the front as we stand and as we sing in response.